Peace of America, Washington, D.C., signing on. Welcome to another episode of Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org, hosted by me, N.C. Scout, the best-selling author of The Gorilla's Guide to the Baofeng Radio. And today, we're going to be doing another sit-down with Matt Williams of Knightsbridge Research, private intelligence firm, and we're going to be breaking down a lot of the world events, kind of how... We're seeing the bigger picture unfolding in the Middle East. We just got done with a very lively conversation about the goings-on in South America and how this is going to factor into the equation and what this means for you, specifically what the, the bottom dollar here is, what this means for the outlook here in the United States, because we're not coming out of this thing unscathed. This is not something that's just going to occur you know, it's spectator sport. We're going to be watching it on the news. No, this is just bad things to happen in somebody else's country. Now, we're, we are getting ready to see, I think, in my opinion, some rough times. And uh, they're about to get a lot more challenging as the, the leadership that we're getting out of Washington, D.C. leaves a heck of a lot to be desired. Uh, to, to put it mildly. So without further ado, brother, it is great to have you back on. Yeah. Hey, it's great to be here again. Uh, two times in a month. That's great. I know. I know, man. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's good stuff. It's good, good stuff, stuff. indeed. Yeah. I, I really enjoy being on Radio Contra. I love the format. Uh, it's always good to talk to you. Uh, I like that we can speak for a few minutes at a time each segment and really develop ideas right it's not uh it's not like when you flip on the tv and everyone's yelling at each other uh, at least here we can actually get the ideas across you know so any chance i get to, to come on radio contra i'm always excited about it yeah man well likewise likewise it's uh and and you know I, i'll say that the uh the last episode we did where we broke down the goings on on the border, why that's a threat and why yes. people need to pay careful attention to it. And that dovetails to what we're going to be talking about today. But that episode and, and for those of you who didn't go back and listen to that, that was one of our uh, most highly rated episodes, both in terms of the number of likes and the feedback that, that I got from it. Uh, as well as the number of downloads. That was one of our, our uh, highest downloaded episodes. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's big audience. We've got just over 17,000 subscribers to Radio Contra. And, uh, you know, it, it's this this is going to no doubt 
be uh, putting that past episode in perspective as well, because it, it's it plays directly into what's going on on the bigger picture. And I think that's what a lot of people are missing. They're putting things in, in these singular events, but they're not seeing the bigger picture that's unfolding on the global stage. And more importantly, they're not really sure what to do about it. Uh, their own individual preparations. But um, anyway, with that said, you know, in case you've been living under a rock, we know that the Middle East is is on fire. There is a wider conflict that is unfolding. It is the second front in this uh, worldwide uh, collision of two hegemonies that are in competition now with one another. The United States, Western hegemony that that Israel falls uh, neatly into and is a manifestation of, historically speaking. And then you have the uh, Eastern hegemony that is made up of China, made up of Russia. Iran is in the mix. And there's going to be a third uh, opening of that. I foresee in South America, uh, which which very much has been in competition for a while, and, and the United States has been losing. Um, so we're going to be discussing all of that, and first and foremost in in that uh, is is breaking down this Middle Eastern theater that's that is unfolding. So we know that we had the uh, Allied E uh, Baptist Hospital that was attacked. It looked like to me initially, and I haven't been proven wrong on this yet, that an errant rocket, an errant rocket, did in fact hit a fuel storage tank by the the uh, the flames of the explosion and the fireball. That's not really something you get from a high yield warhead. Uh, a, a uh, professional binary, you, you're not going to get a lot of flame and flash with that. And this one did. And so um, I think that their their estimates of casualty numbers is certainly off as well. But none of that matters. They're using it for full propaganda value. Uh, and, and, you know, we saw this manifest yesterday in the United States Capitol as well. Uh, that was being led by, by Hamas sympathizer Rashida Tlaib. So, you know, break down for us the the bigger picture, where Jordan falls into the mix, where Syria falls into the mix, where Iraq falls into the mix, uh, Iran's moves, and where you think Saudi Arabia is going to go. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, looking at this from a really big picture perspective, right, um, I, I think it appears imminently obvious that um, Iran is dictating uh, Hamas's moves and also Hezbollah. Um, I, I don't think that's news to anyone uh, who pays attention. Um, the interesting thing about Iran is that you're having two completely different narratives come out of leadership in Iran. One of the narratives is is very much, hey, we're not involved. We, you know, basically don't come at us. Right? We're not involved. We didn't plan the attacks. You know, Hamas does their own thing, that type of rhetoric um, and indicating that they're not particularly interested in getting involved. You've got the other side that's saying more or less the opposite, that um, we cannot let this uh, invasion into Gaza 
by Israel happen, you know, we're going to have to take some form of action. So you've got competing narratives, which is always very interesting when that happens out of a major player like Iran. Typically, you don't get that out of Iran. And I think that uh, what that does is it shows that there's there's a little bit of disagreement there uh, among not only the military, but the uh, civilian leadership in Iran as to what exactly they should do next. I don't think that Iran is is put together on this. I do think they helped plan it. Um, I think that there's a lot of indications that this attack by Hamas, the original attack, uh, was far more successful than Hamas thought it was going to be, <laughs> right? They, I think they were a little bit blown away, honestly, at how successful this was. And I think Iran was too. Uh, I, I don't necessarily know that this was designed to kick off a major regional conflict, right? It was another... Uh, another attempt to hit Israel, as Hamas has been doing for a very long time. And so once it had massive success from the Iranian and Hamas perspective, right, then you've got Israel uh, about to bring down the hammer, right, and call up almost 400,000 reservists. Like It's on now. Hamas might not exist in the year in any real form. Uh, and now you've got, in my opinion, you've got some some chaos in Iran. What do we do now? Um, so I think those discussions are ongoing. I don't think it is settled inside of Iranian leadership what the next move is. Um, there have been a lot of officials, military officials, the foreign minister, um, flying or attempting to fly to Syria um, to have discussions there, you know, in person, face to face discussions with their own operatives and also the Syrian government. Um, Israel's been bombing <laughs> airway, uh, you know, runways and, and airports pretty heavily in Syria. Uh, and trying to prevent not only that, but more um, deliveries of weapons and such. Um, right. So I think right now Iran is attempting to ascertain their best move forward here. And they've got to have Syria completely on board. They more or less have free reign in Syria anyway. But uh, terror attacks and things like that, transferring weapons to Hezbollah in Lebanon, that's one thing. Um, going toe to toe with Israel and openly using Syrian territory to do so. That's a completely different thing. So I think right now it's kind of geopolitical mode, um, diplomatic mode for Iran, trying to figure out where they're going here. You know, um, you've brought up a, a critical point that I haven't heard anybody make anywhere. And that is that that Hamas didn't, and, and really no one expected the success of their attack. Uh, they they didn't they didn't expect it to do what it did, and that you know that's that's a point that I hadn't really considered uh, because this would explain Rashida Tlaib uh, and their proxies here in the United States, uh, the Hamas sympathizers and their their very sophisticated network of uh, underground material support, which we know exists. Uh, we know this exists. It's, it's not a question. Um, but that along with the, the proliferation of the news coming out of, of Gaza from, you know, our own Western media, uh, which, which is sympathetic to, to the Palestinian cause by every estimation. I mean, this has been, uh, on full display as well. And they're immediately and well-coordinated, by the way, this is very, very well-coordinated that they're calling for a ceasefire. Immediately. And, and we know yeah. that, you know, the, the purpose behind that 
it's just like calling a timeout when you're playing football. Like, oh, you know, hey, we gotta we gotta regroup. Whatever it was we were doing wasn't working. I think you're exactly right, man. They they weren't expecting this to do what it did, and they they certainly weren't expecting the response, which has been uh, typical since the second intifada was that you know Israel would hit selective targets and and kind of follow a limited engagement model. They didn't want to mm-hmm. get into a messy ground war. Uh, the last time that they did something was the the uh, incursion. In, in 2012, if I remember right, into, uh, uh, or it may have been early 2013, into southern Lebanon. And that they took a massive number of casualties when they did that. And, uh, you know, they, they, they're not willing to, they did not, at least Hamas did not assume that Israel's resolve would be that strong. Uh, mm-hmm. Netanyahu is, 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 you know, wasn't very popular going into this. Immediately prior to this, uh, socially, the Israeli uh, people are very, very divided right now. And um, there's nothing like a superordinate goal to get people gathered together, you know, and get them on the same page. And, and that's right. exactly what happened. Yeah. And speaking from that perspective, you know, what's interesting about this to me is, um, you know, the same there's a same, there's a similar dynamic inside Iran as well right now, because you've had you had all the protests right last winter and fall the Masamini protests right the the young woman who was killed by police uh, the more so-called morality police right and it, massive protests like everybody knows what happened there so I won't revisit all that um, but then you also had in this past September on the anniversary of that, the one year anniversary of her death, you had a lot more protests inside of Iran. So Iran's facing uh, at home, a domestic situation that's, you know, it's not catastrophic for the Iranian leadership, but it's more unstable than what they're used to, right? There's more pushback. You know, you're still getting the night calls around Tehran, right? People are chanting from the rooftops, you know, down with the Ayatollah and stuff like that, right? And so you've got that going on. You've got a lot of economic and financial distress inside of Iran. Um, You've got a lot of people in Iran who are mobilized who weren't mobilized previously. Well, you know, we track all that. We every day we're we're checking to see where the protests were the night before, that kind of thing. And so, you know, a lot of those protests were still kind of ongoing. There were a lot of undercurrents in Iranian culture uh, until this happened. And now what you're seeing is huge anti-Israel protests that have swept up and overtaken um, all of the anti-regime protests. It, it, maybe it's the same people, maybe it's not, but the, the entire domestic focus has completely shifted, right? The, the current uh, regime in Iran's under a lot less pressure right now than they were just a month ago. So, you know, you see those undercurrents happening in a lot of different places, but the interesting thing, and kind of as you as you pull on this thread a little bit more, um, not only is Iranian leadership under a lot less pressure, at least publicly, than they were a month ago, but you've also got a, a situation where Israel and their uh, the Mossad, all of their intelligence apparatus, looks a lot less capable than it did three weeks ago. Um, you've got a lot of mobilizing uh, militia groups and proxies of Iran who are looking to do some damage. Um, we saw a couple of drone attacks against U.S. bases in the Mideast uh, yesterday. Um, 
you see that um, Hamas and Hezbollah are mobilizing for a fight. You're seeing the U.S. put serious assets and expenditures in the region. Like if, if you're looking at this in the leadership of Iran's perspective, none of this is a loss. This is all a win. You've got all of these factors, right? At this point, Israel looks weak. You know, they're not going to look weak when they bulldoze Gaza. But for now, they look weak. You've got all these anti-Israeli protests. You've got some minor terror attacks. You've got um, pro-Palestinian, pro-Muslim type protests all over the world. You know, Iran could stop here and count it a win. At this point, yeah. I don't think they're. I don't think they're going to. But they could. They could just call this a win and and walk away happy uh, because so far the big winner in all of this from a geopolitical and a domestic perspective is Iran at this juncture. Yeah, right. I would agree. So. I'd agree completely. Um, they because they don't have anything to lose, you know, right. in, in big picture, they do not have anything to lose. And when you don't have anything to lose, everywhere is up. And, um, you know, the, I would say that that uh, right now, so as of today, some of the breaking news that has come out of the region has been attacks on U.S. outposts that we have both in uh, northern Iraq and in Syria as well. Um and these, these are uh, Iran proxies. This is coming from uh, IranInternational.com, which is a, a news site that, that tracks a lot of the uh, Iranian uh, activities that are happening abroad. But um, anyhow, Iran proxies are targeting U.S. bases amid Israel-Hamas tensions. And uh, right now, it looks like these bases were attacked with drones. Uh, mm -hmm. This, of course, is is the emerging standard of of how uh, you know these things are breaking down. But um, this is going to continue, and I think that we're we're going to see an uptick in these things, um, at least from my perspective. You know, break this down for us. Uh, what's going on here? I know that that uh, you guys were, were tracking this as well, and where you see this one going. Yeah, as far as the proxy attacks and and that type of thing, um, yeah, we, I, I mean, there's almost no scenario here where you see a decline in these attacks, right? Um, a lot of these militant groups are um, increasing their recruiting efforts. Um, you know, an, an angry anti-Israel, anti-U.S. crowd in the Middle East is prime recruiting ground. So you're seeing some additional recruiting efforts. Um, you're definitely seeing a lot of these militia groups and proxies, um, at least on the surface, being a lot more active than they have been in, in recent years. Um, and so I think these drone attacks that we were just discussing is, is you know, first wave of many. Um, they're just energized, right? That, that's all there is to it. They're energized by the attack on Israel. They're energized by seeing the images of Israel uh, turning Gaza into powder <laughs> in a lot of places. Um, these are all great recruitment tools and they're all very motivating. So, um, yeah, there's almost no scenario where these proxy attacks don't really increase in the coming months, especially when you consider that, you know, Israel's operation in Gaza is not going to be short. 
it's going to be months, months, months long. Gaza is a small place, but it's a heavily urban environment. There's going to be a lot of IEDs. There's going to be a lot of traps. Uh, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed when Israel goes into Gaza. And if Hezbollah gets involved, you know, 10x that. So, you know, they're going to be mobilized and energized. And, you know, now's the time, basically, for these for these proxy groups of Iran. Now's the time. And, and they're going to take advantage of it. So, yeah, U.S. military assets are going to get, you know, they're going to get hit. And, and I'm sure they're as prepared for it as they can be. But the, the concerning thing is one of these attacks, the one that was at the um, Al-Assad base or Al-Assad base, um, it was a, a drone carrying some kind of explosives and, and they actually shot it down. But it got it still was close enough to troops to where you've got uh, an unknown number of troops, probably not very many, one or two maybe that are being evaluated for brain injuries. So yeah. a single drone. <laughs> got through while the military was on high alert that doesn't bode well to the you know our future interception of these drones because it's highly likely that you see you know volleys of them right 10 15 right. at a time against u.s bases in the middle east i think that's a near certainty as we move forward into the coming months so what does this look like for jordan because jordan for, for those that don't know, uh, King Hussein II has a, a very strong relationship with the United States mm-hmm. um, and the West in general. And uh, he is, I think he's probably the, the best spoken monarch in the world today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but that aside, uh, the Jordanians have a long contemptuous history with the Palestinians. Uh, the last time that there was a, a large influx of Palestinians into Jordan, they tried to overthrow his father. And uh, <laughs> he's not having any of it. And uh, domestically, it's looking like Jordan is is going to be a, a hot spot. Uh, yeah. So how, how do you guys see that breaking down for them? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting, you know, Jordan has, what, 10 million people in it, something like that. A lot of those are of so-called Palestinian origin, right? Um, you know, the interesting thing is is that, you know, the president of Israel was in Jordan, if my if memory serves, um, last spring, right? It, it, was, it was a big deal. Um, first official visit by an Israeli head of state, yada, yada, yada. Um, so that was a big deal. And, and Jordan has attempted and Israel have attempted to to smooth over the remaining difficulties in the diplomatic relationship. Um, you know, they signed a peace treaty in the early 90s, if I remember correctly, and that's actually held up really well. Um, you know, the they're on good terms with the United States. You know, so on the surface, you look at that and say, you know, no threat to Israel here. Right. On the surface, at least. The difference is that the people of Jordan uh, have a very different perspective on the Israel-Gaza situation, right? I mean, we've seen the protests. Um, you know, the the uh, they were about to start evacuating <laughs> the, the king uh, they because of the protests. I mean, tens of thousands of Jordanians protesting um, against literally against the leadership's decisions um, regarding this conflict. So, you know, a lot of it just comes down to assuming the monarch can hold power, 
um, you know, there, there's no there, there, right? There's, there's no conflict between Jordan and Israel. Um, the, the military in Jordan is extraordinarily loyal to the king, right? Extremely loyal. So, you know, unless you see a full-on coup attempt, a successful one, I don't really see Jordan getting involved at all. Um, they're certainly not going to allow Iran to use their territory for anything significant. Um, they're not necessarily interested in, you know, taking in Palestinians, but they're not interested in fighting in Gaza either, you know, alongside Israel. Um, so really, I, I don't think that Jordan's going to be a big player here. But I do think that you're going to see a lot of domestic unrest in Jordan, right? Because as the, the population there, you know, further realizes that they are going to remain essentially neutral in this conflict um, and with a slight pro-Israel, pro-U.S. bent along, among leadership, um, that's not going to sit well with the people. So, uh, you know, domestically, Jordan's got problems coming. But on the international stage, I don't, I don't see many paths to them becoming involved. So, yeah, that's that's my perspective on it, anyway. Yeah, I, I'd concur, and uh, you know, for a nation that is critically important to Western foreign policy in the region, it, it's mm-hmm. certainly concerning. Uh, but they, their issues are going to be domestic now. Let's talk about a a neighboring nation whose domestic issues could mean turmoil for the entire Western world, and that's Saudi Arabia, because they're tied at the hip to not just our economy, but Europe's economy as well. What's that going to look like for them? Yeah, I mean, Saudi Arabia is is kind of in this interesting conundrum, right? They they do want to normalize ties with Israel, and, and that's a that's a sea change moment, by the way, in the Middle East, right? It, we don't, in the West, we don't typically understand how big of a deal those normalization discussions are between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Um, so Saudi Arabia, before they paused these talks due to this conflict, I mean, they were, they were getting close, right? The bride was almost at the altar with these talks, and they had essentially cast aside the, the Palestinian state idea and they were gonna settle for upgrading their relations with the US to major non-NATO ally, which is what Israel is to the United States, right? So they were moving heavily towards um, greater defense agreements and security cooperation agreements with the United States, and then also normalizing relations with, with Israel, which it, you know, it could be the reason for the Hamas attack in the first place, or one of the reasons was to, to halt those talks uh, and so those are paused is how it's being put, not not necessarily canceled, but just put on hold at the moment um, due to the circumstances. So Saudi Arabia, you know, is is looking to move in that direction. Generally speaking, they've signed economic and trade deals with China. Sure, that's that's out there. Um, but at the same time, when it comes to security and defense and that kind of thing, they're very much attached to the United States. Um, so Saudi Arabia trying to be a counterbalance in the region against Iran. Um, I think that Saudi Arabia's best case scenario is that this conflict absolutely does not spread. That it's between Israel and Hamas. 
Israel rolls through Gaza, Saudi Arabia doesn't really care what happens there, regardless of <laughs> what they may say. I don't think they care. Um, and so, you know, when Israel does what Israel does, and then it's over from there, and you can more or less go back to normal life. I think that's what they're gunning for. Um, not seeing any form of inflammatory rhetoric out of Saudi Arabia, not seeing any real actions that they're preparing to do anything militarily. Um, they have um, indicated at least that due to generic tensions in the region, they may up their naval patrols. So I wouldn't be surprised to see naval and air patrols increase around Saudi Arabia. Um, but right now it's a, uh, hey, everybody calm down type thing for Saudi Arabia. Uh, they they do not want to fight Iran. They don't want Hezbollah to get involved because then you have a greatly increased chance of the war expanding regionally. Um, I think they're very happy that Egypt is kind of standing down a little bit. Um, they're just, they're very invested in keeping the peace as much as possible because they have a lot of economic concerns that they're currently dealing with. Uh, and they have a lot of new trade deals with a lot of nations like China that they're trying to build themselves into this economic powerhouse um, and a regional conflict could really derail their plans over the next, for the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, and so militarily um, they're, they're looking for a stand down, right? They're far more focused on the economic front than anything else. Um, so Saudis, you know, if Iran gets involved, the Saudis, very well may get involved as well. You know, there's a there's a path here to a massive conflict. Um, and it would require the Saudis to be involved. I think that they're just doing everything in their power to make sure it doesn't get to that point. Right. And should they get involved, we could see oil go to, yeah, I mean, ridiculously expensive and scarce. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it it couldn't come at a worse time for the United States because our strategic petroleum reserve is almost non-existent. Yeah. Um, now it has yeah. to be pointed out that the Biden administration sold this to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did. Well, it open market. It went, it went open market. Right. And then China bit out everyone else. So yes, yeah. it wasn't. Of course. Directly. You, you know how these things work, right? Of <laughs> was, course. That's the way commodities hey, open, open market, wink, wink, right? Mm-hmm. And then guess who ends up winning it on the open market? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, right. The, and the fact remains it was sold out. This is our strategic patrol. Mm-hmm. So this is getting into a, a segue into what this means for all of us here in the United States. In the last episode, we talked about our non-existent southern border and how this this is leading to uh, domestic conflict here at home. Well, one of the things that you need to have happen for that is economic turmoil. In, In any revolutionary model, if a government cannot provide uh, for its citizenry in one way or another and transportation and access are, are two of those and a, a wet MC model. So sewer, water, electricity, access, uh, transportation, medical care, and communications. That's, that's kind of the, the pillars of, of how to be a warlord or a functioning government. And then in turn, if you, you want to take it down, 
you eliminate one of those pillars or, or you do dam enough damage to one of them and, and it's going to lead to a fight. Uh, so, you know, here at home, we, we already have high gas prices. I mean, everybody knows that we've got an economy that is strained at best, mm-hmm. uh, and domestic policy that is, uh, not going anywhere. Good. We can, we can see all of this, you know, the, the border, which, which doesn't need to be talked about, but we have a uh, influx of Venezuelan nationals that have been coming across the border. Okay. We've had a, a uh, conflict with Venezuela for many years now, going back to 2004 when um, uh, Hugo Chavez took power in a military coup uh, that led to a reaction from the Bush, uh, Bush administration and the, the Politburo in D.C., and it hasn't gotten any better from there. Uh, in 2018, there was uh, an upheaval there. There was a, a failed attempt at a, a uh, color revolution or regime change mm-hmm. in the streets, and that led to Russian intervention. It was a very soft intervention. They they moved in in an advisory role, uh, but they did position some assets there in Venezuela. But the government under Maduro has had a a lot of uh, reasons to have closer ties with both the Chinese and the Russian governments and has been doing so. I think that what's a very significant story that was coming out this morning was that we have now lifted all of the sanctions that we placed on the Venezuelan government in an effort to get better access to their substantial petroleum reserves. Uh, this is highly significant to me, and it seems like that this is a move of desperation out of Washington, D.C. What do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, the the relaxation of some of those sanctions, um, you know, early uh, analysis on it looks like Venezuela could increase their production by, you know, 200,000 barrels per day, somewhere around there. Um, and they can sell it to anyone without the U.S. You know, interfering, essentially. Um, you know, the U.S., it's interesting, too, because the U.S. recently, in September, right, hit the all-time uh, output for oil, for crude oil. All-time record was in September. Um, so the U.S. is ramping up oil production as quickly as possible, right? Um, the previous record was 2019. Uh, a particular month in 2019. Um, They're also freeing up access, at least, to Venezuelan oil. And I think longer term, the thought is that uh, we've got to have a little bit more of a nearshore capacity for oil, regardless of who it's coming from, like Venezuela. Um, Venezuela, less likely to sell into the United States as elsewhere. I mean, they did just upgrade their um, their partnership with China in, um, man, maybe a month ago. It wasn't long ago, uh, early September, I think, um, where they're now, they're calling it an all weather strategic partnership <laughs> with China. Um, so that, you know, Venezuela is certainly not our friends uh, by any stretch. And a lot of sanctions are still on Venezuela. Um, but I think that uh, on some level within the United States, there's this realization that, um, we're not going to be able to fully rely on Middle Eastern oil. And, and the whole situation with Russia was a little bit of a wake-up call, especially for Europe. 
to, to not rely too heavily um, on your um, strategic competitors <laughs> for, for oil and gas and such, right? But as we go along here, you know, the U.S., even under the Biden administration, is, is still um, ramping up oil production heavily. And I think that that's because globally, you know, looking into 2024 and beyond, uh, potential war in the Middle East, potential action by China in the Pacific, all of these things are really bad for oil. Oil prices could skyrocket if either one of those two things happens, much less if both happen. Um, so, you know, you're, you're throwing spaghetti at the wall a little bit if you're the United States trying to find where's our oil going to come from in these scenarios. Um, the timing is a little off, I think, on the uh, lifting of sanctions on Venezuela with the Middle East situation, because these discussions with Venezuela have been going on for six or eight months, right? Um, what we don't know is if the U.S. Uh, walked away from some of its demands on Venezuela in order to get something and then lift sanctions as a result of the situation in the Middle East. Right. We don't know what the U.S. was originally pushing for in those negotiations. So it's possible that the U.S., you know, gave up on some of its priorities in order to allow this oil to hit the market. But that's just something that we're probably never going to know. Um, overall, though, looking forward, I mean, you've got most economists saying 2024 recession. I don't think that's out of line. Um, and every time you have another global flashpoint pop up, um, there's a reason we call our report the global hotspot report. <laughs> Every time you've got one of these hotspots pop off, um, that just adds to the to the risk. That adds to the risk here at home because even though we produce a lot of oil, we sell a lot of oil overseas and we buy a lot of oil from overseas. Um, and you know, quite frankly, if if the oil coming out of the Middle East were to stop or slow dramatically, um, we know good and well that American oil is going to be shipped to Europe because that's what happened after Russia invaded Ukraine, right? Our prices didn't need to go up after right. that happened, but our prices did because the U.S. took a lot of our uh, oil and, and other fuel products, right, and sent it over to Europe to, to shore up the situation there. And we would do the exact same thing again. So taking that all into consideration, just because we can be energy independent doesn't mean we ever will be based upon our relationships with other countries. We would sacrifice that. We would sacrifice $3 a gallon gas to support Europe and pay $8 instead here at home. That, that's, that's what would happen. Right. I mean, I don't like that reality, but it is the reality. Nonetheless. I don't either. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, I, nobody does except those that are making money off of it. They, sure. they don't mind. Uh, yeah. Because, they're fine with it. Yeah. Everything for them is a tax write-off. Oh, <laughs> they, they'll they'll say things like uh, Jennifer Granholm's answer of "We'll just buy an electric car." Mm -hmm. No, that's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. Yeah, um, I live in Texas, man. Electric car won't even get me a quarter way across the state. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, this is ridiculous, man. Mm -hmm. This is ridiculous. So, you know, definitely not a good picture that's being painted here. And, and when we're becoming more reliant on other uh, sources of petroleum outside of the Middle East, just, just as, as your uh, uh, assertions hold, 
And mind you as well, that, that this might be a shift in strategy. I think that it's very short-sighted because we've made enemies with, with a lot of countries south of, of our southern border. Mm -hmm. And they're very friendly with the competing hegemony right now um, and will likely continue to be so for the foreseeable future. Um, and all of a sudden we want to play nice. Th this is a this is a major showing of weakness, at least uh, from where I sit and, you know, kind of looking at it from a realist point of view. They're going to look to take advantage of this. I mean, there, there was a lot of real suffering that was happening in Venezuela because of American sanctions mm -hmm. and that government, the Maduro government. I mean, we, we tried to overthrow them. They, they're not going to take that laying down. Um, they're going to get vengeance on that. Um, yeah. And, and what better time when knowing that your enemy is desperate and is acting out of desperation, they're going to mm -hmm. stab you in the heart. Um, yeah. or, you know, and, and so I see that coming that, you know, we, we were at a very weak position, both domestically and abroad. And mm -hmm. now we're going to them saying, Hey, we need oil. They're going to, they're going to supply it in so much as they're getting what they need out of the deal. And as soon mm -hmm. as it is strategically necessary for them to cut that off, sure, I think they're going to do so. Yeah, I mean, they desperately need U.S. dollars and they desperately need sanctions relief. Right. And in the perspective, I think, coming out of the Biden administration is if we ease sanctions, maybe the massive flow of Venezuelans up through our southern border declines a bit because the situation economically is better back in Venezuela. We get more oil on the market. That's something we can brag about. Um you know, they're looking at it like this is kind of a win-win. But I think it does two things. I think it does project weakness um, that we don't keep those sanctions on because the situation hasn't changed in Venezuela, right? The original situation there is the same as it was when we put the sanctions on. Um, secondarily, I think it's an indicator of where, uh, using broad terms, where the United States government thinks the world is headed, right? Because it's an indicator, you know, there's there's always multiple levels to every decision. Right. And what I really like to do is look at the the incident, such as this removal of sanctions on Venezuela and try to go two or three levels past that and say, OK, what what are you thinking in D.C. where this is a necessary step? Right. What are the decision makers thinking that led to this? Um, and I think that there's uh, beyond what we've already discussed that this move is a real indicator that the leadership there is um, pessimistic about the direction of uh, the Middle East and the oil situation. And they're willing to appear weak in order to get this oil back out on the markets. And, and maybe there's something else going on behind the scenes with Russia that we don't know about, you know, OPEC in general, but it's an indicator for sure. Um, and generally speaking, when you see moves like this, um, you know, we can speculate and uh, we can put our heads together and all that. But there, there's a lot of data sets out there and there's a lot of inside information that we out here don't have access to that that those in D.C. do. So they typically see things coming, you know, better because of the access, the information access they have. So we that's why you have to. Well, we hope. I mean, they have the tools. <laughs> They have we the hope tools. they do. Yeah. 
they have the tools and it's just a matter of do you use those tools or not right and, and do you use right. appropriately and all that um so you know it's never the it's never the announcement that you get the information from it's thinking about what's behind the announcement and what led to that and what are they thinking to do this thing um so I, you know overall I, I take that as another indicator that you know hard times ahead on the global uh, economic scale and likely with the supply of oil in the middle east um, the administration too um, has been um, less anti-oil than i think most people thought they would be he came in pretty anti-oil green agenda and that's definitely still there uh, but he's also, you know, relaxed some waivers and things like that, I think, out of absolute necessity, because you don't win an election on six dollar a gallon gas in the United States and eight dollar a gallon diesel. <laughs> you lose right. overwhelmingly in that circumstance. So, you know, there, there's a lot of moves being made on the oil and gas front for sure. Well, it, it would shut down the American economy overnight. Yep. I mean, that that would be the thing. That would, in theory, and, and I, I say this speaking as, as just the laity that, that's been watching the markets for, for mm -hmm. most of his life, but that would be the thing that would kick off hyperinflation quickly. There, that would be the first domino that, that would set it off because the hidden cost of transporting goods everywhere across the United States, it all relies on the price per gallon of diesel fuel. You know, gasoline is is something that you know we we uh, individually consumers will mm -hmm. buy and and you know okay, but the the actual end product, right, of everything, of everything we have, all relies on the price of diesel, and mm -hmm. if diesel fuel goes goes eight dollars a gallon, you're talking about a fifty percent increase of everything. Yes. Meaning, and 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 here it is in in real world terms for for you know, uh, Joe Main Street, is that now your money, however much money you have, is worth fifty percent less overnight, right? Overnight, and so that right there is is the the flashpoint economically, and we're already I, I think you know, and as a matter of opinion and seeing the strain, uh, we're already approaching a, a time where a lot of people are saying, Hey man, you know, like I just don't have it. Like at the end of the month, I don't have it. Credit card bills are at an all time high and, mm -hmm. um, kind of savings speaking, and savings are way down to boot. Savings are at an all time <laughs> low. And speaking anecdotally here, but kind of a generational thing for you and I as, as uh, you know, very, very late Gen X, very early millennial. Um, you know, it's very easy for us to see on social media, you know, the little vignettes, the TikTok videos and what have you, of, you know, the clueless millennials that are entering the workforce and they got their undergrad degree from wherever and got ripped off by it. And, you know, uh, you know, student loan debt and, Oh, I'm not making any money and like all stuff. And, and it's easy to point the finger and make fun of that. Right. But when you think about these things critically, like these, these are indicators. Oh, these yeah. are, in, these are big time indicators right here that something bigger is, is, manifesting and and the good times that we've had the relative good times um 
they economically we we've got we've got a storm that's brewing and i think that it it's every economic factor is codependent in importance on one another but the fuel prices are what drives the consumer pricing of everything if you can't yeah. get the products there and you're coupling that with already a substantial degree of social strain and the public perception that, you know, hey, I'm kind of fatalistic in how I'm looking at the world. I'm not going to get ahead no matter what I do. We can write these people off as stupid or they just don't work hard, which may be all true. Right. It is true. I, I think that a girl holding a Starbucks cup sitting there complaining in her car is an idiot. If you, you know, if you, you took out an $80,000 loan for an undergrad degree, you're an idiot. But a lot of people did. That doesn't, that doesn't reduce the reality that this is real, man. Like this, yeah. this, these, these are people who will in one fashion or another because of the strain, because we're approaching kind of a Weimar Republic type economic uh, crisis. We, we could potentially be. And these are the kinds of people that once they are pushed into that direction, they'll settle for any answer, no matter how, how crazy we might think it is today. We, we may sing a different tune tomorrow and that's a very scary position to be in. Yeah. I mean, overall there's, there's a lot of cracks emerging, right? And, and there are, not just tied to inflation, but just tied to monetary policy and everything else. There's a lot of cracks emerging, right? Credit card debt, super high, savings very low. Um, you know, a lot of people are now having to pay on those student loans that they weren't paying on for a long time. Um, you know, wage growth not keeping up with inflation. Uh, the job market numbers, employment numbers look really strong, but that's because you have, you know, all-time record number of people taking multiple jobs to make ends meet. Right. With interest rates the way they are and housing the way it are, houses have never been less affordable than they are right now. Um, rent numbers are really, really high. Like, yeah, you roll all that together and it's it's a it's a rough situation for your average American. Right. Yeah, you go to the grocery store and you walk out with half the food for twice the price. <laughs> it's, that's a tough environment right. to raise a family in or even just as a single person to live in um, for those out there who are so. You know, it doesn't take a huge shock to an environment like that to, to have catastrophic consequences, right? Uh, a major conflict in the Middle East, which we've been discussing, um, sending oil prices through the roof could provide that shock. Uh, and that would be a significant jolt to the system uh, that could cause all kinds of economic chaos here in the United States. Um, I, I personally... Um, and I don't know who knows and who doesn't know. I did a decade in finance um, to start my career. Um, so I did a decade in finance at investment banks and things of that nature. Um, got out of that world, lost all my hair doing that and <laughs> decided <laughs> this is not the place for me. Right. A um, lot of a right. lot of research, investigative type stuff at investment banks. Right. Uh, anyway. And so. You know, in my time there and looking at the overall situation, I I don't think that the U.S. is in danger of a hyperinflationary scenario unless it loses reserve currency status, regardless of these shocks. Hyperinflation being, you know, 100 percent inflation per year, kind of what Argentina is going through right now. 
right? Where it just exponentially gets worse all the time. Um, the the demand for dollars is so high internationally that it, it in my opinion, uh, I, I think we disagree on this a little bit, and that's totally fine. But in my opinion, it's not necessarily possible for the reserve currency that's well used globally to enter a hyperinflationary state. Um, you can see a lot of evidence for why that is. And you can also look at every nation that's ever experienced hyperinflation and they were all lightly used currencies on the international scale. There was no demand for that currency, even before it was went hyperinflationary. You know, Weimar, Germany, Argentina in the early 2000s, um, on and on Zimbabwe, no one was using Zimbabwe's currency, but Zimbabwe, right? Mexican so when you've got this, pesos. all of them, yeah. all of them, yeah. they're these, they're these third world countries or, or near third world countries that no one wants a currency anyway, super easy to have hyperinflation. The U S dollar is the opposite of that. Um, not that it won't eventually be replaced. It will historically every reserve currency gets replaced. So it will at some point in time. And when that time comes, then then that's a whole nother scenario. But as long as it maintains that status, um, inflation could get out of control by our standards, but uh, not by the standards of Argentina in 1999, <laughs> right? And 2000 and that kind of thing. Um, despite that though, you know, another round of soaring inflation, um, a shock to the system coming out of the Middle East or China going after Taiwan, which would cut off, you know, Walmart's empty after that. Good luck. <laughs> right. So either of those things providing a major shock could basically make um, affordability and living standards in the United States just absolutely bottom out. Pretty quickly, too. Yeah. So, a lot of risk. There's a lot of risk right now globally. It's it globally and, and here domestically, I mean, it, it, it's the, the culminating factor of all these things coming together. It's definitely at a minimum, I think our lives in, here in the United States, the quality of life that we currently enjoy is certainly facing some, some dire challenges um, and probably will change in the next 12 months. Um, I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that I can come back that, you know, 12 months from now and have you on a podcast be like, man, that didn't happen. I, <laughs> yeah. I'll be glad yeah. if it doesn't, uh, yeah. you know, but, but I just, something tells me, I just got a feeling that um, it, there, there are too many variables that have a culminating factor that is negative to the United States, to us domestically, uh, how this is is all shaping up. So I just, mm -hmm. it's um in, in our our southern border, as you pointed out on the last podcast that we did together, this influx of, of people who are coming from South America, the uh, the Chinese nationals that are coming in, I don't think that the, I think this is insurmountable. Just as as uh, you asserted socially. This, this is insurmountable. Um, we're already seeing the, the fruition of people who have refused to acclimate to American culture coming to a head right now. Um, you know, we see this in places like Dearborn. We see it, you know, in, in several cities across the United States. And they're being ushered along by communist activists. That part's, uh, you know, indisputable. And we saw that on display yesterday. 
But that is not to underscore the fact that there is a large number of people in the United States now that do not want to acclimate to the predominant American culture. And, and they've kind of they, they exist in spite of it. Uh, their existence is in spite of it. And we're seeing a lot more of that attitude coming in. It's being incentivized. And I don't think that that we're going to in, in a decade's time, we're not going to be able to uh, overcome that, that reality, those social fractures. Yeah, I mean, it, anytime, you know, anytime you are uh, importing people who do not integrate, there's an increased level of risk there. And that's any country any situation, right? If you have um, factions of people inside your country uh, that are not, uh, that are not integrating, that are not kind of moving in the same direction as the rest of the country um, typically has, then you're going to have problems, right? And there's a lot of reasons why, you know, there's countries out there that have virtually zero immigration, right? Japan, try to immigrate to Japan, see how that goes for you, right? It's not gonna happen. It's not going to happen. And, you know, people get people get uh, been out of shape on social media uh, and in the mainstream media about, you know, calls to slow or halt immigration. You know, it's, oh, it's, it's racist. It's this, that or the other. It's, uh, but if you actually truly understand how an economy works, how a nation works, um, if you truly understand risk on a strategic perspective, um, immigration in and of itself. Uh, when done with inappropriate levels is a massive benefit to a country. Immigration gone wild is a massive negative, right? And especially when you, when you think about, you know, you can have one thing, one of two things, right? You can have significant immigration or you can have significant benefits provided to the people in your country. You can't have both. And if you have both, you're, you're draining yourself dry uh, you're bringing in a block of people who only seek the benefits, but not to assimilate, not to integrate. Uh, and as a as a nation state, uh, that leads nowhere good. And unfortunately, that's the path that the United States is currently on. I agree. I agree. It's e- either way, any way, you know, we boil it down. We're definitely headed towards a cataclysm. Um you know, and, and that's why we do what we do. But uh, with that said, coming up on the hour, brother, how can people find you? Yeah, thanks. We uh, so online at knightsbridge.ltd uh, on X at KBR underscore Intel. That might be the easiest place to, to find us and then grab our links from there. Um, but yeah, Knightsbridge Research is uh, private intelligence firm, as you mentioned, we've um, been working with our private clients for years. Um, you can see their endorsements on our website and on our uh, Twitter account, X account. I keep calling it Twitter. Um, and then we've just uh, about a year ago, I guess, launched the Global Hotspot Report and Briefing based upon all of our collection and analysis efforts for our private clients. So uh, check us out there. Uh, the Global Hotspot Report is Monday through Friday. Put in code SCOUT and we'll give you a free month. And this isn't a free month like, hey, sign up for 12 months. We'll give you a free month. It's just a free month. <laughs> so uh, no strings attached, right? Give us a try. 
uh, and see what you think. If you don't like it, no harm, no foul. But uh, if you do, we appreciate your subscription there. So knightsbridge.ltd uh, is where you can find us. Amen, brother. Amen. Man, as always, it is awesome to sit down and get a podcast kicked out. Um, I know that the, the last one was well-received. This one is absolute fire, in my opinion. Uh, and, I, and I always oh, yeah. love having you on, man, because we get this natural flow back and forth. That's anyway, right. with that said, folks, check them out. Get that free month. Get up on the podcast or get up on the podcast. Get up on that product and keep yourself ahead of the curve. Now, also, with that said, keep your head on a swivel. Stay sane in an increasingly insane world. God bless, and I'll talk to you again very, very soon. This is NC Scout, out.